Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the Oscar goes to... Oh, thank you so much. This might be the one time I'm speaking. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. Could you double check the envelope? And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Thank you, love. You guys are just standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing, but thank you. This is nuts. It's a tie. I'm the king of the world. And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... My only object in being here is to try and get out of the truck. Watch like a watch like a... He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a... Could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm going to make him an offer again. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fruit for Frodo. Nice clean. Don't laugh! Can't stop what's coming. This ain't reality TV! I will not fall into despair! You hate bloggers! You mock Twitter! It's time, Robbie! He's back! Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to everything, everywhere. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 351 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. The time of recording is 11.04 a.m. on July 9th, 2023. Here to join me today for this episode, I have Nadia Dalamonte. Hello everyone. And Josh Parham. Hello, hello. So for this week's show, we are going to have some preliminary talk about the upcoming fall film festivals. Josh Parham will be attending Venice for us this year. Nadia will be attending Toronto. I will be at Telluride, Toronto, and New York. So I thought we had some really great perspectives here. We also got some initial news this past week pertaining to some of these festivals. So figured we could have, like I said, a little bit of a preliminary conversation to get listeners ready for what to anticipate. We're also going to go over the trailer for Bob Marley, One Love. We're going to go over the polls. We'll answer fan questions. But before we get to any of that, what has everyone been watching this past week? Starting off with Nadia. Nadia, have you been able to catch anything at the movie theater or at home? I have, yeah. Not too much. But what I have seen was very, very eventful. So I saw Joyride. And I can't remember the last time I laughed that hard. Not just in the theater, but on the walk outside of the theater when it was over. I was giggling the entire time. It's so much fun to watch. It's raunchy. It's heartfelt. Charming. It has a really strong emotional core, too. And and the entire cast, Ashley Park, Sherry Cola, Stephanie Hsu, Sabrina Wu, they're, they're all brilliant. They work amazingly together. I would love to see their characters on, go on more adventures and also, I think beyond the laughs, it's there's also a really poignant story in there about identity. And there's some really, really moving scenes that kind of caught me off guard. And so for those listening, I really do hope you go get to see this film in theaters because it's 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 a, it's a great time. It's, it lives up to its title. It's full of joy, big laughs, 
great acting, a fantastic musical number in there, and much more. So highly recommend checking that one out. Yeah, that's part of the reason why it was our podcast review yesterday. I really, really am hoping that people will listen to us discuss it and, you know, seek it out. Because while No Hard Feelings was pretty funny at times, it definitely, I feel like, sucked a lot of the air that Joyride was also hoping to uh, partake in. Yeah. (laughs) Because it it does feel like it's, like, you know, being released in the shadow of that movie and... Oh, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you want to go have a good time. Yeah, and I think it really deserves to be a much bigger hit than it than it looks to be right now. So I really, really hope um, people go and see that. And I also got to see the new Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one. And I mean, I'm just tensing up just thinking about this one. It is it's nonstop action. Um, it's got some really, really thrilling sequences, some of the best of the entire Mission Impossible franchise, definitely sequences that will linger by just by way of sheer entertainment and production value and choreography. I was at the edge of my seat, especially during the final act, which I won't get into. Um, the story engages pretty well, I think, is with the subject of AI and its increasingly scary impact, which I think feels particularly timely right now. Um, I did have a couple issues with it, um, just regarding some of the character development, which, again, I won't elaborate on just yet. Um, I know we still have a week before it uh, before it's released. Um, but overall, it was really thrilling, and I loved the opening sequence. It kind of reminded me of the magic of, of, of the franchise and why I'm a fan in the first place, which is a pretty great way to start a new Mission Impossible film. So I, I was really happy with it overall. Um, so um, I'm excited for more people to see that. And I also rewatched uh, just on a whim Ladybird last night, which is one of my favorite films and also one of my favorite portrayals of a mother-daughter relationship on screen. Um, just in anticipation for Barbie, I'm kind of in Greta Gerwig mode right now, so I'm revisiting some of her work leading up to to that release and uh yeah every time i watch it it just gets me every time and i'm still reminded that laurie metcalf should have won the oscar that's just me uh her scene of the, that the car in the airport just destroys me every time so that was a really nice warm and fuzzy uh watch last night believe me when i tell you it's not just you <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about revisiting Lady Bird and Little Women in anticipation for Barbie, but I'm, let's just say Barbie feels very different than those two movies, and I'm worried about how that's going to paint my viewing of that film when I watch it by comparison, so I decided not to revisit those movies, but God, I love both of them. They're so, so, so phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think what I notice more and more upon rewatches, too, is how full the community is as well. Like, you get to know the interior lives, not just of Lady Bird, but all the characters around her to the point where the place becomes a character itself. Like, the specificity of place is something that she captures really, really well, um, as well as that mother-daughter relationship. So it's, yeah, it's a really, really special, special one. And our Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning podcast review is coming in a few days' time. I'm getting ready to go watch it for a second time this afternoon, actually. So very, very excited to talk about that one for sure and get into some more detail. 
Do, do you think it's deserving of the 99% I currently see it at on Rotten Tomatoes? I, I mean, I, I did have some issues with it, so I wouldn't say it's totally deserving to be that high, but I can definitely see why it's that high. Like, the action sequences are really, really well done. And like I said, I won't get into it too much, but there is, in that final act... I mean, there's a sequence that just it had me at the edge of my seat. So I, I think I can see why it's that high. I don't necessarily agree with it being that high. But um, yeah, it, I think it's definitely it's a crowd pleaser, I would say, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a flaw of the Rotten Tomatoes pass fail system, I think, where yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is the best of the franchise or better than Fallout. But yep. the problem is that even with people citing the flaws in the movie, it's still ending up in positive territory, whether that's a 6 out of 10 or a 7 out of 10 for people, and thus you get that high number. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens after it opens and more people get a chance to log reviews and where it ultimately ends up. But I was very, very surprised when I saw that it got that high of a score at first. But hey, you know what? If that means that the box office for the film does exceedingly well and Tom Cruise continues to be the movie star that he is and brings people back to the cinema seeing stuff in premium formats such as IMAX Dolby Atmos I'm all for it yeah and he definitely gives 110% he's he's determined all the way all right Josh Parham what about you what was your week like uh well I also watched Joyride this week and was on the podcast review of it and do recommend people Listen to that review and also go see that movie because it's very funny and it deserves your support for sure. Uh, Another movie that I saw this weekend is The Lesson, which is this new movie that has Richard E. Grant and Daryl McCormick. And it's sort of like this thriller where this tutor comes to this residence and there's a writer that he really admires and he kind of gets drawn into this sort of bigger plot that's happening. And I remember actually not knowing much about this movie until I saw a trailer for it like a couple weeks ago. And the trailer looked really good. But I have to say that I was actually quite disappointed in this movie. And it was a shame because I really thought that we were going to get like a lot more of Richard E. Grant just being this smiling devil throughout much more of the movie. And not that he's barely in it, but I just don't feel like he got that much to do. And the movie itself felt pretty lifeless, to be honest. And and it was a real shame, too, because I was actually sort of looking forward to it after I saw the trailer. And there's good people in it. Julie Delpy also has a role in it, too. But I don't really feel like they give the actors that much to do in this story. And it just felt kind of lifeless on the screen. So, uh, you know, I'm always glad to see Richard E. Grant and more stuff. But this one was a bit of a letdown, I have to admit. Yeah, I kind of feel similar, Josh. Dan Bear, you know, he saw that film during Tribeca, really hyped it up for me. I was very excited when I went in to go watch it, and I kind of came out of it saying it was okay. It, like, it wasn't terrible, but I don't feel like I'm going to remember it necessarily in a few weeks' time. There is one moment in particular where Dan had such a strong reaction to a line delivery that was uh, given to Richard E. Grant by Daryl McCormick in the third act that the minute it happened within the film, I knew instantly that was the moment that Dan was referring to. 
<laughs> because you know how he gets sometimes, right? And yeah. so <laughs> like I like that was maybe the high point of watching the movie for me was that context, that moment. Um, but that should tell you everything you need to know about the rest of the movie and how I felt about it walking out of it. I just thought it was just a very average, bland film. Yeah, I really wanted more out of it. And as I said before, wanted more Richard E. Grant because he's great in everything, but he didn't have that much to do, uh, sadly, in this one. Um, and then outside of that, I've just mostly been doing some rewatches of stuff. I actually sort of felt like revisiting some of Nolan's movies in the lead up to Oppenheimer. So I rewatched Batman Begins for the first time in a very long time. And that's still a movie that that holds up. I can see sort of the the groundwork they would lay to create something even better for me in The Dark Knight. And I, I kind of do see some of the awkwardness in the storytelling in that first Batman Begins movie, but it's still really good. And, and it was nice to revisit it because I really had not seen it in a very long time. And the last thing that I did see is that I recently did just get Showgirls on 4K and decided oh to finally God. break that one out. Man, you know, I don't know if I could ever really say that that's a good movie, but it is a very watchable movie. I will certainly say that. And it's it's still a blast to experience that film. And if you haven't. Please do. Like I said, I can't say it's good, but it is memorable and you will have a very good time watching it at least. Okay, so for myself, I am continuing to do some rewatches for our 2011 retrospective. I rewatched We Need to Talk About Kevin the other day. I rewatched The Ides of March and I also rewatched Warrior. So kind of going through some movies that yeah I, I i've seen them but it's maybe been a little while since i last saw them just trying to get them fresh in the mind mbp film community ballots will be going out soon for nominations for that so stay tuned uh but also dead reckoning part one i don't want to get too much into it because we are going to have our podcast review of it but if i had to give a very very succinct reaction i would just say that i don't think it's the worst Mission Impossible film, and I don't think it's the best Mission Impossible film. I think it's somewhere in that middle range, and I'm really curious to see how a rewatch holds up for me. There were, without getting into specifics, there were some things in that movie that just caught me off guard, both from a storytelling perspective and also, too, from even a technical perspective, that... I'm hoping it's like something that it was just me and maybe I won't even notice it on the second viewing. I I, I highly doubt it because I noticed it the first time. But I don't know. Compared to Fallout, which I feel like was really a peak for the franchise, this did seem like a step down in terms of its visual aesthetic and just some of the pacing of the movie, too. But yeah, we'll see how it holds up later. And then we'll do the full review later this week. I'm looking forward to discussing it with everybody. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues 
for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, so fall film festivals, Venice, then Telluride, then TIFF, and then New York. What an exciting time. It feels like it's the point in the year where there's so much buildup because, as we always say, it's the time where so many of these new movies are going to get seen for the first time, have their world premieres. Many of them will be in the Oscar conversation. So... There's a lot to look forward to here. In discussing that with everyone, um, we got some news this week. First off, with Luca Guadagnino's Challengers, which is going to be opening the 2023 Venice International Film Festival, starring Zendaya, Mike Feist, Josh O'Connor. Uh, it's going to be premiering out of competition. This looks like it's going to be Luca Guadagnino's most mainstream film to date. What do we all think of this news? Josh, how do you feel, you know, seeing as how this is your first Venice you'll be attending? This will be the opening night film. How do you feel about all of this? Yeah, being out of competition is interesting for Guadagnino specifically because his movies usually are always in competition. So he won Best Director last year for Bones and All. Yeah, so that's a little worrisome, to be honest. Um but maybe at the same time, this is just looking at a strictly commercial play. Maybe it's not really meant to be a big awards contender. It's this uh, strategy with this. I'm not sure. But honestly, I just want to see the movie. I mean, that was such a great trailer, and they really sold me on it. So I, I think my expectations maybe are not quite as high anymore, but I'm still very intrigued as to what this movie is actually going to be like. Here's the thing, though, because it's playing on the opening night of Venice – that means that there's more than enough time for it to then also play a Telluride the, well, technically like two days later. It does feel like a Telluride movie. I, it does. I mean, Bones and All played a Telluride last year, but at the same time, I I don't know. Am I thinking it feels like Telluride because King Richard played a Telluride and that also had tennis in it? And, you know, it's like, <laughs> um, admittedly, the trailer got me pretty excited, but... I also do recognize that this is let's just say I have my reservations about it. I'm not too thrilled to say the least that this is one of the films that could be going from Venice to Telluride um, because Venice typically tends to get a lot of flashy world premieres. Telluride will get a few world premieres, but it will play films that previously played a can. It will also play films that previously played at Venice for the first time two days typically because that's really the only amount of time that they have to cross over and get to Telluride um, and that's brutal you ask anyone that's ever done that before brutal flight schedule to do all of that big uh, world premiere stuff at Venice and then hop on a plane and go all the way to Colorado <laughs> from Italy insane in terms of movies that we think are going to premiere at Venice we've discussed Michael Mann's Ferrari as a possibility before that hasn't been confirmed yet? Well, unofficially. Okay, it's one of those. All right. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's been invited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, Bradley Cooper's Maestro, also a heavy possibility. Although I saw a tweet from Esther Zuckerman, who uh, lives out here in New York, and I thought this was a very interesting tidbit. Um, there's a good chance that it could also premiere at New York, given the Bernstein connection. True. Yeah. Uh, but Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born premiered at Venice. So I feel like Venice would make a lot of sense for that. Yeah, given the, as you said, the track record of his other movie. Yeah, it, it does seem like that would make sense. You would probably, you would really need like a big platform, I think, to start that whole award season campaign for, which we know was going to happen. <laughs> Here's what I'm thinking for Maestro. I'm thinking Venice World Premiere plays at TIFF. And then for New York, if they want to do the whole Leonard Bernstein New York connection, they either give it some sort of a special screening slot the way that they did with, say, Till or Armageddon Time last year, or they give it the uh, centerpiece uh, section or the closing night section. I'm, I'm like very, very, very firmly in the belief that Killers of the Flower Moon is going to open New York. I'm like... Not 100% certain, but like close to 100% certain. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, Marty lives in New York and yeah. has such a history with that festival compared to Telluride or TIFF. And can titles tend to repeat at New York more than any other festival? I can't recall the last time a film that long played at Telluride, at least not in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think it makes the most sense. If it did stop at TIFF, I would be genuinely shocked. Truly. I'm hoping for it. <laughs> I know everybody is. Because you know what it is? Everyone is hoping that TIFF will either get Dune Part 2 or Killers of the Flower Moon. Like, they just want something big. Well, yeah, because what I'm thinking about, because we have the so the Cinesphere and the IMAX, that big theater, we're all kind of thinking, well, what could play there? What could play there? And those two movies are kind of, they could fit that bill. So we'll see. You know what I think it's going to be? What? I think it's going to be the creator. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With John David Washington. Yeah. That's my guess. Okay. Uh, so other Venice world premiere possibilities. Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things makes a lot of sense. Oh, absolutely. Which I think that might be the one I'm looking forward to the most out of everything that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Same. I agree. Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. Maybe it's tough because I, I could see going for a world premiere there. I could see a world premiering at Telluride. I could see it even world premiering in New York. Like I, I, I could see any of them. Yeah, that one feels like there's a lot of different possibilities. And I wouldn't be shocked with any of those. Um I, I do kind of feel like it might show up in Venice, but as you said, it, it does seem like there's a lot of possibilities where it wouldn't be very surprising to go to any of them. And then Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, uh, with 100% certainty, will play a Telluride because Payne is so close to the festival there. Now, whether or not it's a world premiere remains to be seen. I think... It's possible that could also premiere at Venice and then just go straight to Telluride. But that's one of the ones I think could have its world premiere specifically at Telluride itself. Well, you say, especially given how close he is to that festival itself, it seems like that might be a very strong possibility. Yeah, I know Downsizing premiered at Venice in 2017, made its way over to Telluride afterwards, but 
Hmm. Either one could go either way. What do you all think about the possibility of Miyazaki's How Do You Live not having its world premiere at Venice because obviously it's playing in Japan first, but do you think it's a possibility that it also goes there or do you think it goes maybe to TIFF? Maybe both. I was leaning towards TIFF. Yeah, I, I think so as well. I can see it going to TIFF. Yeah, me too. For sure. And I know that animated films playing at NYFF are sort of a rarity, but they do happen from time to time. And I think someone of the stature of Miyazaki, possibly his last film, I I think that that would be worthy of playing amongst the lineup in New York should they choose to program it. So that's also on the table. For Miyazaki, that would make sense for uh, New York, especially. Mm hmm. I do want to say, though, that we did get uh, an announcement for uh, another world premiere at TIFF this past week. Uh, So we already knew about Next Goal Wins, which that was something that I think even back when the trailer dropped, we were all suspecting that it would have its world premiere at TIFF because that's where Jojo Rabbit rent. And, you know, the it's Searchlight. It's also the the vibe of the story. And it just makes sense for that TIFF audience. Uh, But we also found out that Laji Lee's Lay in Desirables will have its world premiere at TIFF this year. Um, it's the follow-up film to Les Miserables, not the Tom Hooper musical. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so were you all fans of that movie? How do you all feel about uh, the follow-up here uh, getting its world premiere at TIFF? Because obviously it's definitely one of the more hyped-up titles for it to be a part of the pre-announcement before they announced some of the gala titles. That was a good movie. I did not love it um but i thought it was solid i i do remember that season i was a little salty because it was the french submission at the oscars instead of portrait of a lady on fire so i was always i always held a little bit of resentment unfairly against the movie but uh i thought that film was like it was good not great but definitely well directed so i am intrigued about what his follow-up is going to be cameron bailey the ceo of tiff said Uh, This deeply personal film beautifully captures the struggles and aspirations of a community reflecting Lee's unparalleled storytelling skills. The film is starring Alexis Minetti, Jean Balabar, Steve Tianchu, and uh, Anta Dua. It is, uh, I think, going to be... No, they don't say specifically what day yet. It's going to have its world premiere. But the festival runs from the 7th until the 17th. We're going to be there for a pretty big chunk of that this year, so... We'll definitely have that film covered amongst, of course, many, many others. I know I mentioned Dune earlier. I'm still going back and forth on this because I keep hearing some people saying, oh, Tiff, because the first one was there. But I really feel like it's wishful thinking that that would happen. However, a world premiere in New York or AFI is maybe on the table because it's a little bit later in the schedule, thus giving the uh, team more time to finish the visual effects. Because still for the life of me, I cannot believe that we are getting this movie two years after the release of the last one. Like, they shot this thing, have to work on all the sound work and the visual effects. Like, I'm just amazed that it's going to even be ready in time for November. So... My gut is kind of telling me they're going to be working on this thing until the last minute. Exactly. And the other thing that we've also talked about is how that first Dune really had to prove itself in terms of being not only just a 
a good movie that more people would want to see, but also as an awards contender. So it kind of needed to make these stops at the festivals to make the case for itself. Not really the situation this go around. We know what Dune is. We we know how good it can be and what categories it can break into. It doesn't need to prove itself this time around. It, it It's already done that. So I can understand them saying, we're not going to do the festival season this time. As you said, take the time to just make sure the effects are good by the time it's released and just go with that. Okay, so what else is uh, standing out to any of you? Have you guys given any thought to what could premiere where? Or, you know, is there something maybe flying a little under the radar? I know we're discussing a lot of the big titles right now, but... I think at TIFF, I I think it's likely for the bike riders, Jeff Nichols. I think so, too. I mean, he's been before with Loving and Take Shelter a while back. So I could see that one popping up. Yeah, something about the bike riders to me, it feels very, hmm, I don't want to say more commercial, but I do feel that that's the kind of film that would world premiere at TIFF versus a Venice or a Telluride beforehand. Hmm. Yeah. I know there's a lot of speculation about David Fincher's The Killer. Mm-hmm. There's like two possibilities that are being floated around right now. One is that it will premieres at New York because Fincher typically takes his films if he goes to film festivals to New York. Or it skips to fall film festivals altogether. Yeah, I have a feeling it will just skip them all. So what would Netflix's presence feel like at the film festivals this year? Are, are they going to treat Maestro as their power of the dog, their Roma, if you will? Try to take it everywhere? I kind of feel like they would. It sort of seems like that's what's going to be their big priority this year. I mean, then you have Rustin, which could premiere at Telluride or at TIFF. Be a play for Coleman Domingo for actor. There's also Saltburn. Oh, that's definitely, I know, a war right now to figure out where that one's going to have its world premiere. Oh, man, the follow-up film from Emerald Fennell from Promising Young Woman. You better believe that's one of my most anticipated films of the rest of the year. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) If I had to take a guess, I'm going to say Venice World Premiere, Telluride, TIFF, doesn't Mm. go to New York. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. What do you think about uh, Napoleon? If it does have a world premiere anywhere, it would be a TIFF. But I... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what to make of that film. You know what? Actually, Nadia, going back to what you were saying before, that could be our big IMAX movie at TIFF. It could. It could. I mean, I am personally, I mean, I'm crossing my fingers for Marty, but <laughs> but I can see that. Yeah. I was thinking about like how interesting life would be if Barbie and Oppenheimer were releases later in the year and they were also part of this conversation but oh my gosh, i'm pretty yeah. grateful that those movies are going to be out of the way before we get to this point yeah i mean i, f- I feel like have if those two were in the conversation it would just overpower <laughs> it would take up so much uh so much of the buzz i mean demand for tickets for these things are always crazy as is and everybody always treats them like life or death aka me um but <laughs> i do feel like i would be shaking screaming, crying, vomiting, everything if I <laughs> was you know, trying to get a ticket to get into either one of these Oof. at a film festival of all things. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, you guys get your invites for these two movies? 
I haven't, but I did get an email back regarding Barbie. So I'm following up <laughs> with an email tomorrow. So we'll see how that plays out. But Josh, I think you're one of the people that unfortunately got caught in the uh, cross uh, the cross screening fire, if you will. Uh, yep. Invite for Barbie and Oppenheimer the same day at the same time, just at different theaters. Oh. So that's insane. Yeah. Why? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Like to what to what point, you know? It's like uh, here's here's my theory on this. And I I think this is going to wrap up our Fall Film Festival talk unless if you guys have some final points, but I will just divert really quick and just say this. My gut is telling me that on one hand it's pettiness. And then there's another part of me that's also thinking that, on the other hand, it is, you know what? If we give people the choice and they choose Barbie, that means they're more in the camp for Barbie, and that's a win for us mm-hmm. in terms of reviews, reactions. I'm not saying that they think the movie is bad. I'm just saying that it's curious that they would do such a thing, right? Because they know that certain critics are not going to go see it. They'll go see Oppenheimer instead. Why else would you do that unless if you were somewhat uncertain about how people are going to receive your movie? Yeah, and this isn't a situation where, like, oh, they just were surprised by this. Like, we've kind of known Oppenheimer was going to screen on this date for a while now. So it it is very intentional to schedule it like this. And, yeah, maybe there is some strategy that if given the choice, the people that will pick one or over the other are more inclined to be excited about that movie and might be kinder to it. That mm-hmm. could be a strategy. I mean, I still want to see both movies, but yes, I also have to make a choice as to which one I will see at the screening. And spoiler alert, I did choose Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm still thinking about which one to see first. I keep going back and forth. <laughs> it's definitely a decision that we are all going to have to make. And I'm very, very curious to see how the box office shapes up that weekend because Barbie is tracking higher than Oppenheimer. This was obviously, I think, for anyone that really studies this stuff, not a shock, should not come as a shock at all. However, it's really encouraging to see that Barbie is tracking to do near 100 billion and Oppenheimer's tracking to do near 50 billion its opening weekend. I mean, that's just great for a healthy box office all around. So I'm all for that. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a great weekend. I I can't Mm -hmm. wait for it. Yeah, I'm very, very pumped. I'm also, uh, like I said, pumped to see how both films contend within the Oscar race. And then we'll have uh, some time to digest that before the fall film festivals kick in. And it's going to be a really, really exciting next couple of weeks for sure. Yeah, it's all kind of building up right now. This is always the kind of exciting time where everything is sort of just on the horizon of what we really start to get into. And it's very exciting. Yeah. And and just speaking, going back to the um, something more under the radar for the festivals, I was thinking at TIFF, maybe um, that the Jessica Chastain movie memory. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is it Michelle Franco? It's with um, Peter Sarsgaard as well. Yep. So that's a, I think that's a strong possibility for Tiff. Just Jessica Chastain's always here for for her work, so that seems that seems likely. Also feels like a 
then it's world premiere, and then it goes to TIFF afterwards, because Franco uh, is no stranger to that festival, so. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that happening, too. Uh, we're going to get some announcements in the next couple of weeks, specifically for TIFF. Not the full lineup, mind you. That's going to come later, but uh, we would definitely will get some big gala announcements, so very much looking forward to that. Of course, then the Venice uh, International Film Festival lineup is going to be announced on, I believe it's July 25th. So yours truly will be up at 5 a.m. in the morning for that. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Always an exciting morning. <laughs> All right. Well, here's a film that, given its release date, I don't know exactly where it's going to fall in this conversation about being even an awards player for this year. Uh, it all depends on if they decide to give it a qualifying run at the end of the year. I'm, of course, talking about Barb, Bob Marley, One Love, starring Kingsley Benadire and Lashana Lynch. It's being released by Paramount Pictures on January 12th, 2024. So like I said, unless if this gets a qualifying release at the end of December, this is either an awards player or it's not. But let's take a look at the trailer. Let's give some thoughts here. Oh, you want to start? From the beginning. Reggae is a people music. People coming together. Ooh, yeah. You know you're a superstar. And a superstar. Mm, so musical biopic 101. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I hate to say this because I really, really like Kingsley Benadire. I thought he was truly amazing in One Night in Miami. Yeah. This trailer didn't do anything for me. No. And it's because it's falling into the same cliches that I feel like we see with all of these studio produced musical biopics. And I don't understand why nobody has figured out how to tell these stories any differently. <laughs> Well, it's it's a formula that unfortunately does work most of the time. Like we can bemoan Bohemian Rhapsody all we want, but that movie made almost a billion dollars worldwide. So there's a reason they stick to it. But this trailer did not really make this movie look all that exciting to me. I agree with you, Matt. I am also a big fan of Kingsley Benadire. I think he should have been Oscar nominated for One Night in Miami. But this just looks more of the same to me of what we normally get out of this subgenre. And yeah, the, the release date also makes me curious because when you see something coming out in January that's got the prestige that this supposedly does have, that does make you think, well, that's the wide release date. But if it is just going to stay in January, then that's a very not good sign for the quality of this film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's directed also, too, by Ronaldo Marcus Green, who previously gave us King Richard, which went on to be nominated for Best Picture, winning Will Smith an Oscar for Best Actor. Monsters and Men, of course, got critical acclaim, but then somewhere nestled in there is a movie called Joe Bell. Oh, wow. I completely yeah. forgot. <laughs> and so we all have to wonder to ourselves, which one are we getting here? <laughs> oh, man, I completely forgot about Joe Bell. That That is a shame because... The other movies are actually, you know, they're really good. And yeah. even King Richard, I think, was a movie that was very underrated in terms of its direction. You know, it's not the flashiest thing out there, and it definitely felt more like a studio product. It's a sure, steady hand. Yeah, but he, there were even, like, some shots in there that I thought were very strong. And so I think he's a good director, and I do want to support him. But this just does not really look like the 
type of project that I would get very excited about. Yeah, I think for, the actors are drawing me in more than anything else. Kingsley Benadier and Lashana Lynch, who who's fantastic as well, following a great year with uh, last year with The Woman King and Matilda the Musical, which she was wonderful in. So I'm excited to see her performance. Yeah, I'm excited to see it for the actors, for sure. Yeah. And also, too, like I said, the curiosity factor of Ronaldo Marcus Green. Hopefully, um, it's the one who gave us those other two films that shows up, not the one. But then again, I've also spoken to some people who haven't taken to any of his films. And some people really didn't like King Richard either. So there are others who feel a lot lower on this film's prospects than even us right now. So take that for what you will. Uh, what do you all think of just Kingsley Benadire, just from what you see so far in this trailer um, of him as Bob Marley, this iconic musical figure who has, you know, dorned a many uh, college uh, dorm room wall? <laughs> I mean, he looks good in the part. I just also think that it looks very kind of expected of what you would think you would see out of this performance. And. And I am intrigued to see what he's going to do. As I said, I am a fan of his and I want to support you know, the projects that he's working on. And I think maybe this could be yet another example where we say uh, the movie's just OK, but that lead performance is really good. And if mm -hmm. it is good enough, maybe yeah. they will qualify it at the end of the year. You know, might be the last time that they can pull that strategy, as we know, they're changing the rules in the future. So. This might be one of the last occasions we see that strategy going into an uh, an award season, but I, I still don't know. I, I hope he's he'll be good. It looks like he'll be good, but I worry about the movie around him. Yeah. I had to take a moment to see who wrote the screenplay for this. We got Frankie Flowers, Terrence Winter, and Zach Balin, who he wrote King Richard. Wrote, as mentioned before, King Richard. Yep. Yeah. All right. So... I don't know, man. It's just I'm not very excited about this movie. The, I was a little intrigued to begin with, but the trailer really looked pretty conventional to me. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully the movie can rise above it. Do we think it's even at all remotely possible that this premieres at a fall film festival or no? It's probably just a commercial Christmas release, right? I think, yeah, and they're hoping that maybe if audiences flock to it, then they can maybe put something together for a run. But I don't see this hitting the festivals. Mm, here's something else to keep in mind, too. Just throwing this out there. Dee Dee Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner listed as producers here. Well, that's interesting. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. This doesn't really feel like a project that they would do, but OK. <laughs> hmm. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I wish the trailer got me more excited. I, I, that's my ultimate takeaway from all of this is that on paper, mm -hmm. I should be excited, but the trailer didn't do much to excite me, which is usually sometimes the opposite of how you want to feel, where you look at it on paper and you go, eh, okay, but then you watch the trailer and go, wow, oh my God, I can't wait. I think also watching how bad I Want to Dance with Somebody did last year like kind of around this same time in the yeah. year. It, I think yeah. that also makes it, me very nervous about the quality of this film. Good call out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we head on over to the polls now? Let's see uh, what the MVP film community had to tell us for last week's poll, where we asked them, which film are you looking forward to from the rest of 2023? 
So fall film festival titles, blockbusters, musical biopics, where we don't know if they are 2023 or 2024 technically. (laughs) What are you looking forward to, Nadia? Second half of the year. What can you not wait to say? May, December is up there. I love Todd Haynes and I am very excited. I'm, I'm the reactions out of um, Ken made me more excited because a lot of people were saying that it was it's not quite what you expect from a Todd Haynes movie, which made me more intrigued. So nope. Yeah, I'm really excited. And also by the comedy of it, the comedic aspect that it seems to have. So that, that's uh, that's up there for me. That's one I could see Netflix taking everywhere. Mm-hmm. I could see them bringing it back at Telluride. I could see them taking it to TIFF. I could see them taking it to New York. All of that makes sense for that movie. Yeah. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I think my number one most anticipated is Poor Things. I, every time I see that trailer, I'm just so fascinated by it. And I just love the the visuals of this like really weird world. It's like... Lanthimos doing Jean-Pierre Genet. It's like, it's, oh, I, yeah. it's so bizarre, but I really am so intrigued by it. I just can't wait to hear more of that deadpan delivery that Lanthimos is known for. Just the comedy looks so much fun. Willem Dafoe's makeup work yeah. always strikes me every time I watch that trailer. Yeah, I can't wait to see what Emma Stone is going to do in this. She looks like she's having a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. The cinematography, the production design, the costumes like this movie is so up my alley in so many areas. I It just needs to work. It just needs to work. And I'm probably going to love right, it. Right. right. <laughs> Which there's a part of me that feels like this could be a huge failure because it is being so ambitious. But that what's make, that makes me even more excited to see it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Nadia, do you want to name another one before we hear from the MVP film community? Yeah, so I I recently rewatched Marielle Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yeah. Which I, I love, I love, I love. And so in that kind of buzz, I'm, well, I was already looking forward to it anyway, but Night Bitch with Amy Adams, which I know is, it's being released on Hulu. Um, I just don't know when, but that's uh, that's one of those concepts where I feel like I, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but I, I because I like Marielle Heller and from what I've seen from her, I've liked everything I've seen so far. So I have some trust in her and Amy Adams as well. So we'll see how that turns out. But uh, yeah, I'm 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 intrigued by it. So I'm looking forward to it. I am very intrigued by it. I'll be very curious to see if they end up keeping the title for it. Mm, uh. True. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God, that title. I've told you what my, like, internal joke is with that title, is that every time I hear it, I just get an image of Amy Adams headbutting somebody, and that her next line is, night, bitch. (laughs) That's all I hear when I hear that title. (laughs) All I can see now is her character from The Fighter doing this now. Oh, my God. (laughs) Just every one of the sisters, just, you know, five in a row. Multiple headbutts. <laughs> no fists, just yeah. all head. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, headbutt. Maybe that's a good title. Maybe, yeah. maybe. <laughs> oh my lord. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> the woman in the window gives me a lot of pause. Um, yeah. 
I'm not saying that that's directly related here. I think I'm just more so thinking about Amy Adams' uh, choices as of late. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think on the other side of that coin, like, because the women window, for me, that was, like, such a low point, like... It can only like it can't get worse than that. I don't know. Dear Evan Hansen came out oh, after that, I believe. Oh man! Yeah. You know, two movies that, that I didn't hate. <laughs> so I, I know I'm in the minority there, but I didn't hate those movies. They're certainly not, you know, representative of what she can actually do as an actress for sure. But I, you know, I understand why they're hated. But I'm not one of those people, to be honest. Marielle Heller does give me confidence because, like you said, yeah. Nadia, yeah. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Very talented filmmaker. Yeah. But, yeah, there is a nervous quality that I have <laughs> coursing through my body as every time I even think about that title. But it's mostly because, <laughs> as of late, Amy Adams has just not... She, I understand, like, all the choices on paper make sense. I could see why, yeah. as an actor, you would want to do these projects, these roles, but they just haven't worked out. So here's hoping. Here is hoping. Here's hoping. And for the record, TIFF world premiere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Josh, what about you? Um, I think for me, I do think about the some of the can titles that'll be coming out that I haven't had a chance to see yet. And I think the one from that group that's at the top of the list for me is zone of interest. I am just so fascinated by this movie and I just really want to see what this actually is like. Cause I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm so intrigued by what I've heard about it so far and I can't wait to see it. I've been hearing and I, could be wrong about this. I haven't spoken with A24 directly yet, but I am having conversations with a lot of the studios over the next couple of days. Um, I've been hearing that they might be holding it back a bit from the film festivals because instead of like going all out with it, I think that they're trying to maintain the level of intrigue and anticipation and getting people to a point where they're so curious about it that it helps it theatrically when it does release versus by the time it releases, everyone who ever had any interest in wanting to see it will have already have seen it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It also kind of feels like a movie that could polarize people once more people do get to see it. And so you want to control that narrative as long as you can. It's a very, very tricky film to market, and I don't envy them at all. Yeah, but it sounds like it's it's one that will be very effective for a lot of people. But yeah, you have to be delicate with how you do show it to people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for myself, I need to mention Dude Part 2. I mean, like, just goes well, without of, saying. Of course, mm, yes. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm looking forward to New Fincher. Who wouldn't be? Saltburn, as we mentioned earlier, definitely up there. Um, I also want to throw a mention towards Bottoms. Yes. Which yes. I've been so hyped to see since it's world premiere at South by Southwest. I cannot wait to see what surprises that film has in store for all of us. And you know what? I will also throw out there. I am very much looking forward to Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I am looking forward to that, too. Man, that first Chicken Run just a staple of my childhood so it will mm -hmm. be interesting to return to it over 20 years later yeah and that film still holds up incredibly well oh it's so good yeah 
it makes me so nervous that the second film will not be able to hold up. But I don't know. It feels like we've been in a good run. I'm not saying that, you know, it's been perfect. Obviously, like Indiana Jones, people would disagree. But it does feel like we've been in a good run as of late where sequels to movies from eons ago seem to be coming out and people are responding to them. Why am I just thinking of Top Gun Maverick? I I should be thinking of more examples in my head, but anyway. Well, I trust Ardman. Yeah, Ardman, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's see what the MVP film community voted for with this. Uh, Lots of great choices to choose from, obviously. And for this, we had a top 20. Lots of films, so we want to make sure we mention them. Coming in number 20, Taika Waititi's Next Goal Wins. Okay, I don't think I'm, like, particularly excited about that one, but I get why other people would be. Between this and The Killer, I'm excited for the return of Fassbender. Yeah, it's been a... It's been a minute since he's been on screen. But if you watch the trailer for this, it does very much feel like Ted Lasso, the movie, to, a, to an extent. And a show I do not watch, so. <laughs> yeah. Number 19 is The Color Purple. Yeah. That's a curious title for a world premiere at TIFF, don't you think? Mm. Yeah. Like, they could go straight for holiday release, or they could choose to bring it to TIFF nowhere else and let that buzz kind of sit. I can see that. Maybe they choose to bring it back at AFI, too. I was thinking maybe AFI, yeah. Yeah. Number 18. This is a film I don't think will have a fall film festival premiere. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. You don't think so? (laughs) I don't think so. You hear that, Josh? That's the sound of snow falling. (laughs) Number 17. I am very surprised to see this film this low, but... I don't know. What does this tell you all, baby, that the film that is this low is Maestro? Huh. Mm. Yeah, that does surprise me that it's that low. Well, maybe because we're still, like, haven't seen much footage and stuff. Yeah, and all it has really tied to it is that one makeup shot of Cooper. So people are instantly thinking, oh, this is like the darkest hour Mm. promotional tour. (laughs) I mean, that's step one. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln. It's, yeah, exactly. Show the makeup shot, get the best actor uh, buzz rolling. But then there's also the Carrie Mulligan casting, which I think has rubbed people the wrong way. So, yeah, there's a lot of talk about that. I I do think it might just be more so what Nadia said, that it's just we haven't heard that much about it since that first photo. So it might just not be a top of mind for most people. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's getting a world premiere at Venice, we should be getting a teaser trailer soon. Yeah. Number 16, the Palm Door winner, Anatomy of a Fall. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, also could see it at TIFF. Oh, I think this is going to go everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Neon is going to bring it to New York, Telluride, TIFF for sure. Um, They're going to want to drum up the buzz for Sandra Fuller for Best Actress. She is so freaking good in this movie. And... I, I think that if you love true crime, especially, I think you'll find a lot to appreciate with this film. Even though it's not based on a true story. <laughs> it just has that quality to it. Like like those if you were listening to a podcast about a murder, an investigation, court, uh, you know, courtroom drama. It's got all of those elements mixed in. 15, Napoleon. Okay. Hey, listen, new Ridley Scott. Oh, yeah. Always excited about that. Number 14, the question of the year. How do you live? 
Yeah, big question, but very, very excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I cannot believe that we're not getting any promotional material whatsoever before that film premieres. That That is such a ballsy move. Yeah, it's very bold. Number 13. Do you think it's genuine excitement or do you think the fans discovered the poll? Wonka. <laughs> you know, the yeah. thing about that movie is obviously there are a lot of things that make me nervous, but it is also Paul King, the man who gave us the Paddington movie. So I want to be optimistic for that. But yes, I am. I am nervous, but there are signs of hope there. Yeah, I mean, Paddington set the bar pretty high. <laughs> Really high, for sure. <laughs> yes. Even Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal are crying over Paul King's work, for goodness sake. Yes, as they should. <laughs> Number 12, Saltburn. Mm-hmm. Number 11, May, December. Yes. So now we come to the top 10. And at number 10, we have Bottoms. Nice. <laughs> I love seeing it that high, too. Very, very happy. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Number nine is The Zone of Interest, Mm -hmm. which every time I mention a title for this film and it occupies a place within our poll, I always want to make a joke about how, oh, there's a a zone of interest for this film, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Number eight, David Fincher's The Killer. Very interested in it, too. Number seven, Challengers. Yep. Honestly, I'm surprised that it actually isn't higher. <laughs> yeah. Steamy. Super hot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Josh Parham is going to have to bring an electric fan with him during the screening. <laughs> <laughs> Number six. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. I mean, it's still got a few days before its official release. So, yeah. 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 It counts. Number five. Poor Fangs. Nice. Nice. Okay. And this is where things get absolutely insane. Oh, wow. (laughs) I say this because, listen to this, the top four, from number four to number one, a difference of 32 votes. Mm, Very Mm -hmm. close. Super close between all four of these. Number four is Oppenheimer. Okay. Which I got to say, the more I see some of the uh, promotional material that that film is putting out there, the more I think about it, the more I feel this is going to be Nolan's most Academy friendly film to date. And I know we've said that before, but I'm like really believing now just in terms of I could see Blunt being nominated for the first time. I could see Downey being nominated and supporting. I could see uh, Killian. And then it's like from there, the technicals screenplay like I could see this being an across the board movie yeah number three Dune part two makes sense that's another one that we talked about on last week's show and probably going to talk about a lot over the next couple of weeks it'll be very interesting to see how the Academy responds to that one in particular that's the question for me is that I do not doubt that it's going to be very financially successful but I am wondering what the response will it garner this time around that, you know, it's not new. And is it going to be exactly the same? Is it just going to pick up basically all the nominations or is it going to be a bigger player for some other stuff? I, I'm very curious to see what its reception with the Academy is going to be this go around. 
And what I keep telling people is I keep telling people just look at how the way of water performed versus the first avatar. Yeah. And then also look at the way the two towers compared to the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that makes me really scared because I think we all are in agreement for the most part that Denny Villeneuve should have been nominated for the first film. And if this movie sticks to landing, he definitely should be nominated. <laughs> so I, I think it's going to be one of those things where maybe it does everything right. But the Academy just says, well, we've already done this. Do we need to do this again? Okay, and number two and number one by a difference of 13 votes. Oof. Number two. Come on, Barbie, let's mm. go party. Mm. <laughs> and number one, Martin Scorsese's says he's killers of the flower moon. Yep. All right, that makes a lot of sense. What did you all think of that second trailer that dropped this week for it? Not it's as good, good as the first, in my opinion, but I still really liked it. Yeah. yeah, they definitely highlighted more of the quote unquote action. It's not really that kind of a movie, I swear yeah. to you all. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> but it's the kind of trailer that would play nicely in front of Mission Impossible. And I think that's why they put it out there the way that they did. Yeah. Yeah. The first one definitely had more of an impact for me. I agree. And I definitely think the first trailer captured the mood of the movie a lot more than the second one. But I'm just excited that more people are getting a chance to see some more footage from it. And I maintain everything I've said since can about that film. That's also an across the board contender movie. Probably going to be the nomination leader. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's poll. And oh, well, for last week's poll, this week's poll <laughs> for the release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. We are asking everyone, which is your favorite film with Tom Cruise starring in the lead role? So he gets top billing. His face is all over the poster. I'm not talking about this from a category fraud standpoint, okay? All right? Like, we're not going to get into semantics here about Rain Man and Color of Muddy. I'm saying movies where Tom Cruise was the selling point, and he did not have any of that, you know, co-lead status. So, what's your favorite Tom Cruise film, everyone? Uh, out of this list, I think that for me, the movie that I like the most is Minority Report. God, I love Minority Report. I go back and forth between which one of his performances between that and War of the Worlds is stronger. Because I think Minority Report is a stronger movie, but I think his performance in War of the Worlds is better. Yeah, third act of War of the Worlds always trips me up, though. <laughs> that, that's Same. the problem with that movie, and including his performance. That film is literally perfect all the way until the third act. Yeah, I basically say it is a great movie until Tim Robbins shows up. Cosine. Where Minority Report is just... That film is firing on all cylinders from beginning to end. Oh, it, it's so good. Uh, a, a very strong second place for me in this group would also be Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. I was going to mention that. I love Edge of Tomorrow. I do, too. Definitely one of the most rewatchable movies I've ever seen. And it's hilarious that it's so rewatchable, considering how many times you see events take place more than once in that movie, too. Yeah, exactly. That it can maintain that level of freshness is just a testament to how good it is. I, I, just looking at this list, it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And there's a lot of these that I haven't seen in a while, too. But I will probably go with... Um, Probably Eyes Wide Shut. 
yeah, Eyes Wide Shut is up there for me. So two would be Fallout. God, I, like I said earlier, I love Fallout. Top Gun Maverick, a highlight of last year for sure. Saw that movie like six times, seven times. Yeah. I don't even know how many. I lost count. Yeah. Collateral, another banger. Yeah. Oh. Which I was kind of shocked to see that he did have top billing over Jamie uh, Foxx for that film. Well, at that time, I could understand it. I do think that that is a borderline supporting co-lead role. And I would absolutely yeah. say that Jamie Foxx is more of the lead, but... You know, like I said, at that time, you're in a movie with Tom Cruise. I can understand him taking top billing. Plus, Jamie Foxx had Ray that year, too. And that was a bigger movie for him. Like, I, I get it. But I love Tom Cruise and Collateral. That actually might be my favorite performance of his. Mine, too. We need more Tom Cruise villain performances. Yes. He's good at it. <laughs> what does that tell you? No, I <laughs> yeah, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So head on over to the polls page. Take a vote there. Feel free to drop us a comment. Let me know why I chose the wrong movies here for this poll, because, you know, I get it. Category fraud is a thing. <laughs> but let us know which is your favorite film with Tom Cruise in the lead role, and we will announce the winners on next week's show. And now let's head on over to the MVP film community and see what questions they had for us for this week. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Houlihan, do you think there is something the film industry should take away from the Barbenheimer trend? It seems to be working in both Barbie and Oppenheimer's favor in terms of hype, anticipation, and a time where movies playing in the cinemas in the same week get very competitive. Richard, I hate to break this to you. It's called counter-programming. It's been around for a while. <laughs> yeah. Here's the difference, though. Here's the big difference. It's rare that the counter-programming involves two films of this size with this big of a, a fandom tied to each. You know, one that immediately comes to mind is uh, Baba Mia and the Dark Knight. But th this kind of occurrence is rare. Right. On this scale, as you said, that's what makes it feel kind right. of unique at this moment. Yeah. But counter-programming is not an unheard of thing but yeah no. on this scale absolutely and it's great to see because yes counter programming has existed for a while and it works give people different options and they'll all go to the theater edwin Oraz, which movie will receive more oscar nominations barbie or oppenheimer uh oppenheimer but barbie will make more money yep i agree mm-hmm Rika C-H-O-O, -O, do you guys think Killian Murphy could be this year's potential Best Actor winner? I think it's possible. I mean, anything's possible right now. Uh, I would doubt it, though, because Nolan just doesn't usually get his actors in <laughs> nominated. So I'm already concerned about that. And from what I have seen from the trailers, this does look like a very kind of reserved and internalized performance, which means that I will probably love it. But that's usually not what wins Oscars, unfortunately. I mean, all the interviews I've seen so far, everybody is talking him up as this monumental performance, which leads me to believe that there's a lot that we haven't seen from the performance 
in the trailers so far. Yeah. Um, I also think, too, that he very likely could occupy the same spot that Colin Farrell had last year. Critical Beloved Darling has been eyeing to get this nomination now for a while. They finally give it to him for the first time, but he's not so much contending for the win as much as people want him to. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. I hope so because I've been a fan of his for a while and I would love for him to get that kind of recognition. Yeah. He's always so good. And even in, I'm, I'm just thinking about his performance in inception. It's probably my favorite of that whole cast. He's just great. Andre Sousa. What movie do you think will be this year's the son? Ooh. Oh God. <laughs> Well, I still have not seen that movie, so... (laughs) I don't want to, like, wish death upon anyone, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Okay, I'll say it. Maestro? I don't know if Maestro would bomb that bad, though. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. It is Cooper's second movie. Following an Oscar-nominated and winning film. And that's what The Sun was for Florian Zeller last year. Yeah, I mean, that is true. Maybe maybe just based on that parallel alone, you know? Yeah, I still feel like Netflix would never let that happen, though. (laughs) No, I I do agree with you on that, but then again, Blonde exists. Yeah, but Blonde still got an Oscar nomination, though. Lest we forget. Yeah, (laughs) All right, let's uh, move over to something else here. Oscar Odyssey, who's more overdue for an acting Oscar win, Paul Giamatti or Bradley Cooper? Paul Giamatti for me. Yeah, it's one of those things where, for me, I would say it is Paul Giamatti, but to the collective kind of cultural significance of where we are now, I'm sure that answer would be Bradley Cooper, just based on the sheer amount of nominations he's gotten so far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Giamatti is currently my best actor predicted winner at the moment, but I could very easily see that going over to Cooper, especially considering the makeup work and how many nominations this guy has gotten in the last couple of years. Whew. Yeah. Is he in double digits yet? Uh, he's about to be. I think he's at eight. Yeah, I think he's at eight. Anthony at Oscar Obsessive, since Mission Impossible is right around the corner, why do you think none of the previous films have been recognized at the Oscars? And do you think Mission Impossible 7 could change that? Mm, I don't feel like there's ever been really enough urgency surrounding these movies, particularly when it comes to award season. I think a lot of it has to do with that. I agree with you. But I also think some of it also has to do with maybe a bit of Tom Cruise stigma within the industry. Yeah, true. Although that was broken last year with Top Gun Maverick. So, I mean, he did make a billion dollar film last year. Like these films have never been as successful as that one. True. And I think that's what it goes to is that these movies have always been kind of like, I think, seen as respectable kind of action pieces, but not really something more than that. Like they've all made a decent amount of money, but they've never been like huge record breaking numbers either so i kind of feel like the perception of them is that they're just good movies but people don't really think about them outside of that and yeah i mean if it couldn't happen for anything with fallout which really felt like it was at an all-time high of anticipation i am kind of doubtful uh, even of this one yeah I, i think if anything maybe 
a technical nomination, but even that I'd be, I don't know, I'm on the fence. Keenan Milborough, which film do you think will be the highest grossing film of 2023? I mean, at this point, is anything beating the Super Mario Brothers? Oh, man, that is depressing. <laughs> uh, you, you all forgot about it until I mentioned it, didn't you? I, I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah, because I don't think anything coming out in the fall is really going to challenge that. I mean, there's a possibility that Mission Impossible could maybe, given the success of Fallout, Top Gun Maverick, it's really seen the middle of summer right now. But then again... Barbie and Oppenheimer come out right afterwards. They're going to suck up a lot of repeat business, I'm sure, from that. Yeah. Yeah. And then Dune, God bless it, love it. It's fantastic. It's probably going to do so much better than the first film, but I don't think it's going to come anywhere near those numbers. No, no, I I don't think so. Yeah, I I think it's going to be Super Mario. Mm-hmm. Woohoo! <laughs> 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 oh, God. All right. Uh, Steve, the number one, asks, well, <laughs> what do you think is winning Best Picture at the Oscars? Oh, uh, we're, listen, <sighs> our first predictions are coming soon, okay? They're coming soon. Yeah, and I know there are predictions already out there, but look, whatever we say is winning Best Picture now is not winning Best Picture. Like, so <laughs> that's my answer, because <laughs> that will yeah. always be the case. And that is why I am not saying Killers of the Flower Moon right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't think that's winning Best Picture. I mean, it mm-hmm. makes sense as a placeholder for sure. And I would probably say that. But I would say it with the knowledge that that's probably not going to happen. And I'm just waiting to see what organically will come out throughout the season that will push ahead of it. Yeah. Jacob loves film. Why do you think R-rated comedies aren't performing as well as they used to, despite great reviews? Uh, streaming. Yeah, the the perception is, is yeah, yeah. The perception I feel like is those movies you can just wait for them now. They don't feel like events that you have to see in theaters, and it's a shame because I do think that the communal aspect of enjoying a comedy is vital to some of those films. Completely agree. Yeah, I mean, Joyride. My audience was fantastic. It was one of the mo- one of the best audience experiences I've had at a the theater. Uh, kind of piggybacking off of that, Michelle Greenidge, do we think that romantic dramas can reach the height and popularity of the romantic comedy? Also, love the pod. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that's another one that does seem to struggle these days. I don't think that they're ever going to reach the height that the romantic comedy used to have. But it is encouraging to see how well Past Lives has been doing at the specialty box office. Mm-hmm. I think I saw a tweet a couple of days ago that it's outgrossed like four Best Picture nominees from last year already. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of leads me to a point regarding box office and the Oscars and things of that nature. D- don't you all feel like part of the reason why those films didn't do so well had nothing necessarily to do with the pandemic or the reviews or the types of films, but it just had more to do with the fact that audiences are not going to see 16, 20 films in that three month period. And they're just being more selective about which films they specifically go out to see. So naturally, if you try to cram in every single awards contender during that last stretch of the year, not all of them are going to perform well. Yeah. Like, yeah. All of those movies coming out so late and not being in a lot of theaters around that time, too. Yeah, it's going to struggle to make an impact with the box office. Yeah, people will prioritize, 
you know, not just based on what they want to see, but what they have time to see as well. Oscars H. <laughs> Thoughts on this movie, Sound of Freedom, and all the noise surrounding it. Oh, must must we? <laughs> it, it's exactly that. It's noise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies where this always happens. It, this thing comes out of nowhere, and we're all like, how did this get so successful? And it's because, like, churches buy up the tickets in bulk. And, like, yeah, that that's the reason. I, I don't really want to get into it because there's a whole can of worms with that movie. But, you know. That's that's why it's doing well. I don't want to eat worms. That's for sure. Philippa Antonia, do you think Asteroid City will get at least a nomination for Best Original Screenplay? Mm. It would have to be a really weak category. Yeah, which has just not been the case lately. I mean, Original Screenplay, I feel like has been so competitive these last couple of years that it, I, you know, it's not impossible because he is Wes Anderson and obviously they do like him, but... It is that is a category that gets very stacked very quickly. See, now I think adapted is pretty crazy this year because right off the bat, you've got Doom Part Two, Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon in there. Yeah, it's just I normally feel like original. We get a lot of like writer directors in there and it just seems like that usually is the more competitive category like the, like adapted isn't always as weak as it was like last year but i do think between the two of them original tends to have more contenders vying for those spots okay and then last question from maki maki doshas i'd love to hear you all talk about some older films that you've seen for the first time this past year that you loved i saw douglas sirk's all that heaven allows a few months ago and I still can't get over how incredible, layered, mm. and gorgeous it is. I, I definitely have a few. I just got to think about what I've seen. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good question. There's there's a lot of movies out there. <laughs> I, I saw um, last month Pedro Almodovar's Woman on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown for the first time. Oh, I love that film. That's great. Yeah. In anticipation for Perfect Days at TIFF, no, sorry, can might go to TIFF, um, I watched um, Wim Wenders' Wings of Desire. Mm, that's on my list. Beautiful, beautiful movie. Bruno Gans, what a performance. Um, yeah, I the one that comes to mind in terms of something that I watched for the very first time that is an older movie that I've been meaning to get to. Uh, is Possession. I remember that had been on my list for a long time, and it finally popped up, I think, on a streaming service, and finally watched it, and that is a movie, (laughs) for sure. It's very good, but boy. (laughs) I went to the theater, and I saw that movie with Dan, and I agree, Josh. It was bold, to say the least. That's also Uh, on the list. I mean, very good, and that was also a movie that... I, for as much as I had heard about it by reputation, I really didn't know much about the story of it because it felt like something I should go in with as little info as possible. And I think that was the correct decision to make. I think you made the right call. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. What a performance in that film, too, from um... Jesus Christ. Yes. Isabel. Yeah. The commitment from her is unreal. I don't think a performance like that could be pulled off today i feel like you would suffer so much ridicule 
Yeah, because it's it is so intense, very effective, but it definitely feels like something that you could get away with 40 years ago. Maybe not so much now. Yeah. Oh, the red shoes for me as well. Oh, my gosh. I love that more people on the team are starting to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got the criterion uh, for it. And uh, oh, my gosh, I was just I was mesmerized. <laughs> now, you know why Martin Scorsese loves it so much. Yeah. And to be honest, Martin Scorsese was part of the reason why I what drew me to that towards that movie in the first place. So mm-hmm. I love how supportive he is of rest- restoration of film. And yeah, so his passion for it definitely carried over. 100 percent agreed. That's like one of the most beautiful movies I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just gorgeous. Every shot. It's also a lot of fun, too, to watch that and then also watch Black Swan and see the influence on that film. Yeah. I mean, Yeah. Definitely with the character dynamics, too. Okay. Um, I think that'll do it here for this week. Um, eh, you know what? Last question. Why not? Benny Dawson. Assuming Jimmy Kimmel isn't brought back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Who is your current prediction to be the host of next year's Oscars? Assuming that it isn't Jimmy Kimmel? Yeah. Because I think we all sort of feel like it will just be Kimmel again. I, I kind of yeah. feel that way, too. I don't know why it wouldn't be. Yeah, because nobody else wants this job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably a combination of that and also, too, like, he's L.A.-based, so it's easy. And then he knows a lot of the people, you know, from being on the show. He's on ABC, so it's part of the same family. Like, yeah, I know people, like, don't like him as an Oscar host, but I think he's fine. He's very safe. And you know what? On a night where so much could go wrong and we're constantly always, I feel like in this emergency all hands situation of freaking out about changes and implementations that the Academy is making to, you know, draw in a bigger audience and take away from that which we feel makes the show special. I, I just feel like there's always like this ongoing battle that is happening between true Oscar fans and the Academy, like just catering to an audience that doesn't give a shit, which is why last year was so refreshing. Last year's show, it felt like everything went by smoothly, easily. And Jimmy, he wasn't a distraction. He wasn't the highlight of the show. He just showed up, did his job, did what he was supposed to do. And that's okay. I don't need someone that's going to have such a spotlight around them that they are the center of attention during that show. And I also don't need someone that's going to be risque and edgy and create those viral moments in hopes of, you know, getting that outside audience to tune in. It's like, I don't know what people want. It, it almost feels like they want Tom Holland and Zendaya to host a show for some reason. I mean, which kind of could be entertaining in its own way but at the same time it's like i don't i don't like is it is it a generational thing i think maybe that's what it is i think we just see people complaining about it online that are younger and don't vibe with kimmel yeah i i get it he is safe but from my perspective like the oscar host is always the least interesting thing about the show for me i don't really care who they get so like kimmel he'll just do his normal thing and then we'll just see the awards, which is what I care about. Um, I will, though, say that if, 
you know, to fulfill the prompt of the question, if I have to think of somebody else outside of Kimmel, the what comes to my mind, actually, I would love to see Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph. Yeah. All right. I'm going to choose uh, someone to just to answer the question. What do you all think about the possibility of John Cena? For the Oscars? Mm. I mean, I'm in, I feel kind of indifferent. I'm not for or against it particularly. I mean, like, I'm not excited about it either. I just think it's a very uh, interesting choice. We know he's got the charisma. We know he plays well to a crowd from his, you know, wrestling. Um, I, we know he's got comedic chops from the movies that he starred in. Yeah, I feel like you would need to pair him up with somebody, though, because I think, I don't know. He just like I, yeah, he is very entertaining and he's a good like showman. But just as a solo host of the Oscars, that feels weird for some reason. And I don't know why. It would definitely be a different direction if they chose to go that route. Yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting for sure. And I think he would be easier to get than Dwayne Johnson, which I know they've been wanting to get him forever. But yeah, I mean, he would make more sense to me. But yeah, that would be, I think, very difficult to get. I just can't imagine like the Oscars starting off with The Rock grabbing the microphone and saying, finally, The Rock (laughs) has come back. (laughs) To the Academy Awards. <laughs> I just can't. Oh. I mean, if they have John Cena host, they should then just do a gag where you don't see him on the stage. Yeah. And you just hear his voice. <laughs> that would be pretty good, too. <laughs> all right, I'm done. I'm done. That's the end of this episode. Thank you all so much for your questions every week. We really, really appreciate it. Nadia Dalamonte, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Nad Reviews and on Instagram at Nadia Reviews. Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.